sat on both sides of the equation. In the early part of my career, I was a salesperson. In the middle part of the career, I was, I was a sales director. And then at the very end of the career, I was heading large organizations. And as often as not, I was buying. And people would come in and I would get the standard presentation that they gave to every customer. And I'm thinking, this is of no value. I don't understand what it's going to do for me. And only occasionally would people have dug down and found out what our top three priorities were. And of those three, which was the most important? And as important, why was it a priority? Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Jim Irving. Jim is the CEO of Merit Consulting, which is based in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and he's the author of multiple books, including the one we're going to be talking about today, which is titled The B2B Selling Guidebook. Now, in our conversation, Jim and I talk about what Jim calls service-led selling and why service-led selling is so important in today's business environment. We're also going to explore some of the wide range of really practical sales tactics that Jim has included in his book. You know, these are the results of decades of experience in high-level, complex enterprise sales. We dive into how to sell outside the box, how to make your competition worry about you, not the other way around. Jim shares this great tactic called switch selling. Now, this is very clever and useful in a competitive sales situation. It's basically how do you give your competitors a big head fake and send them marching off in the wrong direction. Those are just examples of some of the great takeaways we're going to have for you today, so stick around for these and much, much more. But before we get to Jim, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also leave us a review, give us feedback about how we're doing. Thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for, for uh, having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, this has been in the works for a while, but uh, I'm glad we're able to do this. So you're joining us, I mean, you're taking time out of a Friday evening, like I said, when you should be out at the pub having a pint uh, to talk to me. So, so you're joining us from where? I'm joining you from uh, rural Northern Ireland. I was born in Edinburgh and lived there most of my life, but moved to Northern Ireland um, 12 years ago. So I'm looking out onto rolling green countryside. Very with, green, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's green for one reason, and that is because it rains every second day. So um, <laughs> people, people love the green, but it's not quite as, as, as lovely when you're living here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fun place to go visit, but... Yes. Yeah, yeah well... Yeah, we're on the opposite end of the spectrum here in California, where we're yeah, sort of perpetual drought. So, yes, uh, we should be sharing sharing our water supplies. So, uh, so anyway, welcome, and and we're gonna talk about uh, business to business selling. We're talking about your book, the B two B Selling Guide, uh, with one of the world's longest subtitles: powerful tips, techniques, and tools to help you succeed in business business selling, based on forty years of real world experience testing and on the job research. Yeah, long, long subtitle. <laughs> it was like, Sorry about that. <laughs> very comprehensive. But I enjoyed the book because, I mean, it's full of stories about your experiences, which uh, even though, yeah, you go back a similar length of time than I do in sales, is there's still such relevance to them in terms of what, what's going on today. So who is the sort of target audience for the book? 
The target audience is really two groups. Um, first of all, you're absolutely right. It's 100% B2B. I've never operated in, in B2C. So in the B2B world, it's really those who are starting out or looking to get some direction. The reason for that is that so many people that I'm engaging with as I work with startups now have had no training and no exposure at all. They're just trying to sell. And the second group is those who are experienced in sales and who are just wanting to get a little refresher or a little reminder in a very simple format that, that will help them do their job better. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's always good for anybody, no matter how long we've been in sales, is whether it's a reminder or just a different perspective about something you thought you knew or, or did a certain way. It's always useful to keep learning, I think. So, so I wanted to run through some of the, the things I really enjoyed in the book. Uh, you start sure. off by talking about service-led sales. And I, I have written about this for a long time myself and firmly believe this, oh. that, that sales is a service we provide to our, our buyers. Yes. But it's yes. why is it so hard for, for sellers and increasingly these days sales leaders that are so fixated on metrics and activity metrics and so on? Why is it so hard for them to embrace this mindset? Because this is, in my mind, this is the way you open the door to success in sales. Yeah, and, and listen, you, you're absolutely talking my language. One of the great frustrations for me, uh, my, my career has gone from working inside very large-scale corporates to now helping and supporting startups. And one of the things that really frustrates me is this fixation with numbers, metrics, and measures. Um, the, the, the whole idea of service-led selling actually came to me simply out of desperation. I was in that situation where a lot of people are. We were a vendor selling to a very large company. They had an incumbent. The incumbent mm -hmm. had people based inside the company. And we thought we were better. We felt we were better. But you know what? There was nothing there that we could see that would make that company change. They asked us to bid. We went through the process. And early on, I just felt we're either going to have to disqualify and step back or do something different. So the concept of service-led selling, for me, started then. There were four of us in this branch, and our competitor, the incumbent, had more people inside that one yes. account right. than we had. Right. Yeah? So it's like, huh, uphill task, yep. But we've all been there. So I looked at that and said, right, let's just do something. We cleared our one and only whiteboard and wrote on it, every single question will be answered the same day. And we decided that we would, the only way we could excel and be seen to be different was by delivering service. So we carried on as you would normally do on a very, very big acquisition and procurement. And we went for about four or five months doing all the normal stuff, demonstrations, visits, everything else. But when everything came in, we absolutely stopped the office and worked to make sure we got an answer back. So long story short, at the end of the period, the announcement was given and the incumbent had lost the account that they had held for a very large number of years. So they were shocked. and I, I was quite surprised. But, but when we met with them, they said, and this has stuck with me to this day, they said, when everyone sat in that room, every person felt we could trust you more to deliver on this complex project. And that was the payback. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's it's such a great story because 
it illustrates that you know the customer's experience of working with you as a seller through their buying process is and can be decisive. And they wrote about this in the Challenger sale. I think they said like 53% of the buying decisions based on the buyer's experience. But is absolutely the case, and especially, as you talked about, as sort of the the upstart, the underdog, coming into an account where there's an established incumbent, this is how you win. I mean, it's... it's, I have a a similar example. I was working as a fractional VP for... Uh, a tech company, they sold a combination of hardware, software, yep. test equipment, but selling to large, you know, companies like Apple, large tech companies, Apple, Intel, and so on and so forth. And, and um, yeah, there's one account they wanted to get into forever. It had been the, yeah. the number one account of their biggest competitor. And it was a very similar dynamic where we put a tremendous amount of, of emphasis on being responsive. I, you call it service-led. I call it responsiveness, right? And we were going to yeah, respond yeah. to everything as fast as we could within a certain time limit. Yeah, we cleared the decks every day, but we tried to get back to – we set a standard of 30 minutes to respond to a question or an inquiry. Whoa, yeah, yeah. And so, and so just on the basis of that, the sales started booming. But then with this one – Competitive account is the customer sent out request. They had a requirement to do, I think, two or three bids on a procurement. And so, even though the incumbent was in there, locked in, they sent one to us. My sales guy called him back almost immediately, within half an hour, but this is probably sooner. Takes the guy through answering all his questions. yeah, giving him a demo, you know, this is my inside sales team. And <laughs> yeah. at the end of 45 minutes, the customer says, well, could you send me a, a demo unit, you know, that we could try to see if our software yeah. run on your, absolutely, it was there the next morning. Yes. We got an order, the sales guy got an order at the third day, right, after they, they'd sent in a lead. This account we've been trying to get into forever. The incumbent hadn't even responded. Yes, to the buyer's request to get information for their new bid. Yes. Yep. And and do you know what? That as as a human level, that just makes such a difference. Um, one of the things that we decided to do was as part of that process, and so non-sales as so many people see it, was to be absolutely upfront and honest. And so when they sent five questions we would respond, and on number four, we would say, sorry, we can't do that, but here's our plan to try and help you with that. And, of course, I can only imagine, but I'm guessing that incumbent was doing the standard sales game. First of all, it would take two to three days to get the answers, and they mm-hmm. would typically exactly. weasel word their way around and try and figure out what they could do on things. And just drip by drip by drip, this process became an example of what it would be like to continue to deal with the incumbent or to move to us. And and that taught me an enormous lesson. That, that was just born out of pure desperation, but it stuck with me. And it's something I use for big transactions or when I'm working with my clients now on their, the, the same story as you've just told, on that really big one that they're desperate to get. This is the first port of call. It makes such a difference. And, and it's one of these things where 
it's just not talked enough about. It was the heart of my my first two books were about responsiveness because as a salesperson, you can't control product, the product. You can't control the price, yeah. right? You can't control the features. You can only control what you do. So if you make this commitment to yourself, which I found this out early in my career, so this was something I could do that would make a difference. And oftentimes yeah. I was selling in you know, small high-tech startups where you know I'm reasonably technical, but not an engineer by any stretch of imagination. Yeah, good for a layperson, but but yeah. I needed to differentiate myself. And this is one thing I could do is to be hugely responsive to the buyers. That set me apart in their eyes. And every seller can do this. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it's entirely up to you as an individual. You set that standard. Yes. So you, you can say, oh, the company's let me down again. Oh, this is not good. Oh, that's not good. Who cares? You're the face of the company. You're the, the, the appearance and the reality of what it's like to engage with your company. So unless you take that responsibility, yeah, all of the bad things are going to surface and you're not going to look good. If you are diligent <laughs> and work hard and, as you say, are responsive, my goodness, you stand out from the, from the herd. Yeah, and to your point, and this is a point I make in my in my book, but for me, the definition of responsiveness is just not fast, right? It's it's getting back to somebody with an answer to a question, you know, giving them complete yeah. information yes. or an understanding quickly, right? I mean, yes. you can get back to a an inquiry or you can get back to a customer question and offer no value at all, then that's not being responsive, right? The true definition of responsive yeah. is you're responding to the question. And so, uh, with, with, with something that's got some value. That's right. So if there's no value, yeah. speed does nothing for them. It just wastes their time. But it's adding the value at speed. That's what being responsive is. And as you and I have <laughs> talked about here, because it's something every individual who's listening to the show can control. That's you have yes. you don't have control over a lot in your life as a salesperson. That's one thing you'd have absolute control over. That should be your secret weapon. Yes. As you yes, know, yes. I'm passionate about it. You you've just reminded me of a quote which is which is aligned with this and you'll understand why. IBM launched a giant new mainframe when I was competing with them, and one of the world's biggest industry analysts summarized it in one line and he said, It just doesn't do what you want, but it does what you don't want faster. <laughs> Which is a definition of a lot of selling, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. And so that, yeah. So it's value, delivery, honesty, and responsive, and that combination absolutely sets you apart. And that that has won me a number of inverted commas unwinnable or very very oh. dubious deals over the years, where everyone else carried on doing the normal sales thing, and I said, no, we have to stand out and be different and be better than that. Absolutely, yeah. We could we could record a couple episodes on stories just about that. That I'm sure you and I could could fill the air with. Uh, yes. yes <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So yeah, that one struck a chord right away in your book. Uh, another one I really liked. You talked about selling outside the box. So, and you gave a great story about this. So, and again, this is something that that you know an individual seller can can be creative and come up with. Is so give the give the story. Or talk about the story that you you had in the book. Sure. This is the antidote to that a traditional thing that we all fall into as salespeople, which is where we say, oh, I've got into this account. I've got a friendly contact. I'm going to stick with them. And that's it. So we miss out the rest of the DMU where we're not getting circulating. But there's another level beyond that. 
So, so I was in a situation where I was selling a really, really powerful big ticket hardware item. Fine. Mm-hmm. It was going to run a database. And the whole thing was going to be set up by RFP. And the, the very professional but friendly procurement people said, right, we're going to choose the software first, and then we're going to come to the hardware vendors. Great, fine, that's, that's okay. And, of course, you then go into that death valley where you don't know what's happening and you're all, all the vendors were sitting waiting. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I've done what I can inside this company. I wonder what I can do to influence those people who's selling the software. So I made appointments, some of them quite hard to get, by the way, with the main database vendors. It's all those names that you remember from the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And I had five meetings. And in each of them, I said, perhaps I can help you win if we can jointly see how much success we've had and how much value we've delivered together. Every single one agreed. And we then went into a conversation where, in effect, I was selling to each of those vendors. So, so that went well. We did, we did reference phone calls to joint customers in every case, worked it through. And then, and by the way, same as the first story, we were the smallest vendor bidding. And we probably shouldn't have been there. So come the day of the decision, I got a phone call and the person was laughing. And, and I said, why are you laughing? And he said, well, first of all, you won the business. And I said, oh, fantastic. And he uh, and they said, but we never expected. We thought you guys had good technology, but we never expected every software vendor to recommend you <laughs> to us. Yeah. So, yeah. No. It's, and all of these it's all of these industry giants were flailing around with salespeople trying to explain how they'd lost the deal. Um, but 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 what I said was, who is there outside of the sale? And so in the real world. Who's consulting on this project? Who are their project managers? Who is there that will have some influence when, as it always happens, everybody sits in a room and says, what are we doing on this one then? And if if you've just touched your one contact, then guess what? One person's saying, I like these guys, and the other four, five, eight are saying, well, we like the other one. And so what I did was I got an external view that layered on top of mines and working all of the DMU so that the external uh, influencers were all all in tune saying, we think these guys are great. So that made the buying decision very easy. And it's it's this is something that, yeah, even if you're selling a SaaS product, I mean, you were selling large complex hardware. Yeah, I, I had some very similar stories where large procurements, I always made sure, you know, I was, again, the underdog, but selling, you know, multi-million dollar communication system, but always made sure I had, you know, two vendors, two local partners yes. bidding my product. Yes. yes. And and so if, <laughs> if the customer is getting four bids and suddenly two of them were yours, well, then, you know, you increased your odds of winning. Yes. And they each came with a little different, slightly different perspective. But it was just became sort of standard with my team is, look, we're not going to go single-threaded into large procurements. So, to the point you made before is, is you know, you could be selling a SaaS product. Yeah, who are the consultants, right, that they employ? Yeah. They might have for their fingers touch on it. Uh, you know, who are the outside influencers? Be creative because there's more people that have input into that decision than you think. And if you get more votes on your side of the table, you're going to increase your odds of winning. Yes, yes. And on that subject, even at the internal level, 
I, I saw a piece that you may have seen just in the last week or two, Gartner. How they calculated this, I don't know. But they said that in the last two years for large corporate purchases that are critical to the buyers, that the average number of people involved in the DMU that decides has gone from whatever the number was, 4.1 to 5.7. So in other words, there are more players coming into play. And therefore, if you're still stuck with your one friendly contact, your risk of losing it is increasing every time. And and certainly my personal experience has been that. You know, it used to be you would make a decision and someone would say, yeah, let, you, you would go for a decision and someone would say, yeah, let's do it. Now there's a process and a group of people and more more joining that group. Well, but you talk about this in the book because uh, you wrote about the fact that there are really two power structures at, the, at play in in a customer, typically, you know the formal power structure and the actual power structure, and and I think this is and this is certainly something that that other people have written about. Uh, Professor Steve Martin has written about this in a study he did that said, "Yeah, okay, yeah, you've got a group of stakeholders, whatever number you know Gartner has, <laughs> has denominated this year that are involved in it, but." They're not all equal within that. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so that's sort of your the actual power structure, yeah. right? Yeah. We may have six stakeholders, but this is not a consensus. There's someone who's, you know, personally uh, more powerful, is going to dominate the conversation, is going to influence, you know, as an internal influencer. You need to know who that person is. You need to be in with that person. Uh, yes. And, and in my career, I have found it's just a great question to ask as you're starting to engage and you're starting to build the relationships, which in my view is core and often, you know, not focused on enough today. But I would ask a question and say, like, you know, so I understand everyone who's in the structure, but is there someone that you always turn to in, in things like this? Now, of course, I've been selling either technology or software, but I'm sure the same applies in every other sector. And typically they'll say, well, yeah, that's those are the people that are involved in the decision. But, of course, we never do it without speaking to Andy. Because Andy, sitting away in the corner of the building, is the person who knows everything about how their systems hang together. Not, mm-hmm. not as a formal contact, nothing else. And you immediately turn the guns and go, right, how can I access Andy? What can I do? How can I help? Well, and along that same line is I think that when you're doing – Let's say discovery in an account. For me, the focal point of discovery is I'm trying to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer, right? To me, yes. there's always one thing that's above all others. Yes. You know, they could have you know, 300 line items in their compliance matrix, but out of that, there's going to be one, one thing. Is when you identify that one thing, then the next question is just what you said, is to identify the person in the corner. Who is this most important to? Yes, yes. And that's a question that doesn't get asked enough because it's like, okay, well, this is really interesting. Yeah, but who is this most important to within this organization? And you may find out, yeah, they're saying it's Jim <laughs> sitting in the corner. Uh, he's the one. <laughs> then you need to make sure that you're spending time with Jim. Yeah, yeah. And and you know what? I, I look, and I don't know how you feel, Andy, but, but sometimes as I'm working with organizations, they say, oh, we've got, we've got, 100% written out scripts for calling out and you read it and you, and first of all I, I my heart sinks when people talk about having full scripts but then mm-hmm. there is no relationship it's about a product pitch 
and my brain just screams, no, you have to find out what their problem is. You have to know why they would engage with you. You have to be able to quantify the value that you would deliver to them. And if you don't do that, it doesn't matter how great your script is. It's never going to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree 100%. I'm just laughing because you're one of the few people that that also that I talk to. And I talk to a lot of people on the show that talk about the importance of quantifying the value you're going to provide. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It, you know, it's it's. I believe that until the the buyer, the customer, has broken down into, I'll say, dollars, just to be <laughs> since yeah. I'm here, is the value they're going to receive from using using your system. You can't say they're qualified. Yeah, yeah. You know, if they, if they, you know, they haven't done that internal business justification, they're still yeah. not qualified. That's right. That's right. And and you know, so so I've sat on both sides of the, the equation. In the early part of my career, I was a salesperson. In the middle part of the career, I was I was the sales director. And then at the very end of the career, I was heading large organizations. And as often as not, I was buying. Mm-hmm. And people would come in, and I would get the standard presentation that they gave to every customer. And I'm thinking, this is of no value. I don't understand what it's going to do for me. And only occasionally would people have dug down and found out what our top three priorities were, and of those three, which was the most important. And, and as, as important, why was it a priority? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, as a business, the buyer says, we lost a whole tranche of revenue because this didn't work. So it's a critical thing that we have to fix immediately. Oh, and I always try to quantify. I then say, okay, so what sort of large amount did you lose? And they give a figure. Mm-hmm. Now you've got a value point that you can work from. And people just amble along selling and ignoring what the buying driver is. And I, I just I just find that so critical and so, so important to the process. How on earth can you sell a solution if you don't know what value you're going to deliver? Well, and this speaks, I think, to a really important point for, I believe it's an important point. And I, I suspect you might feel the same way, is that, we have this sellers oftentimes operate with this gap is between knowing something and understanding it, mm-hmm. right? So they can ask their question and get an answer, and okay, they know there's a problem, right? But they yeah. don't understand the problem if they don't take it the next level down to quantify it or understand the why behind why it's a problem. And yes. and I, when we're so scripted, if you feel like you're being scripted as a as a seller. Think about the fact that you're just, when you ask those questions, you're just collecting information, but yes, you're not understanding, yeah, yeah. I, right? You're not taking yeah, it to the I next always, level. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was going to say, I always find that it's that next level of question. And, and when I'm working with startups, that's the thing I tell them to go for. You know, right, there's the problem. Fine. What does that problem mean? And what has it cost you or what's the opportunity if, if whatever it is you're going to offer works? And it's only when you're at that level that you then can understand what the measure is and why it is that that's their priority. So anything else is, is just fluff. Um, I, I don't know if, if, it, if it's okay with you. I did something on the other side that I think you might find amusing. Um, I sold uh, as a business unit leader to um, a very large industry uh, in the middle of my career, and I got to know a lot of people. Uh, About three years back, one of the people had gone to the top of their organization and called me personally and said, look, Mm -hmm. we know what you've been doing. Um, Would you like to flip sides? And of course, you're immediately intrigued. And I said, flip sides? Yeah. (laughs) 
There's a ton of demand. We're trying to focus on doing it. We've run out of resource in procurement and in technology. Would you act as our agent and get us a shortlist and save us the whole long list of valuation? And I said, oh, I would love to do that. <laughs> so, then, so then I faced a very large marketplace and they gave me, oh, from memory, 15, 16 in the long list. Oh, soul destroying. The websites, this was technology, and that may not apply to every marketplace, but the websites fell into two categories. This was the first thing I did, of course, as you would, look at the websites to see what the companies are saying about their solutions. It was either we've got the great, the, the, the best people and our solution is really fantastic and it will deliver you lots of value, never specified, or for those organizations that had come up the pure technology path, it was, we're delighted to announce that version 4.1.7 is now released. And you get to you get to website number five and you're going, oh, please just kill me. So I clicked on <laughs> to the sixth or seventh and it said, is this your problem? And I said, oh, yes, click here. And when I clicked, it came up. And this is a worldwide customer name. It just came up and said, we saved X 16 million pounds in costs in this area last year. Instantly, I'm thinking, I want to know more. What did they do? Mm -hmm. How did they do it? And I was drawn in. Guess which was the first company that I contacted? But did they contact, did they Did they respond to your request for information? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? They were middle of the bunch after that. <laughs> so again, the lesson, follow it through all the way. Yes, but, but my goodness, as a buyer, yeah. suddenly there was something there. Right, there's something in yeah. this space for a known company that's promising value. I want to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, when, if you're getting a lot of no decisions out of your, most qualified opportunities, right? You get to the end of the, the road and they say, yeah, we're just not going to decision right now. <laughs> they never got to that they never got to that point of quantifying the value. And that's why yes. this becomes such a critical step in your qualification process because if you get to the point and the buyer, you think you're at the decision point and the buyer has not shared with you how they've quantified the value of what they're going to get from your system, your solution, they're not going to make a decision. And you're going to get a no decision, and yes. it's <laughs> it's it happens all the time. I mean, it's very predictable. So I think about it from a seller standpoint: is if you're missing this this one thing, yes, yeah. No, that point of defining the value, and particularly towards the end, you know, the proposals that that I work on with with, with my clients, you get the standard ones, which are really just a statement of work or a quotation. And you sit in it and say, okay, where's your understanding of the problem? Where's your analysis of what needs done? Where's the agreement? All of those factors that come in. But then you need to be able to say, as you said when we had the roundtable meeting, the value of getting this right is £10 million. Therefore, this investment hardly scratches the surface of that cost. But versus going into procurement and, and them saying, oh, it's 50K, oh, that's too much. You know, there's other people selling this sort of thing for 30K, and you're nowhere. You've got no leg to stand on. It's only when you've got that knowledge that you can push back and say, well, that sounds like a fair equation. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, or that doesn't, you're going to make so much money off this, the, you know, that 20, 20K pound difference doesn't make a difference over 10 years, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. So, yeah. Well, another 
you know, some good stuff about competition in the book uh, that I really enjoyed. One's um, some valuable competitive tactics. One you call switch selling. Now, this is not bait and switch like we talk about here in the U.S., but it's it's something more clever. It's like a a head fake, and and it caught my eye because I've done something similar. But I like the story, so tell people what you mean by switch selling. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so th- this only works if you're selling a range of products. And it only works if your competitor is selling a range of products or solutions or services. It, this works very well in the consulting world. So, so you go into an engagement, as I did, again, the smaller vendor against a large vendor for a very, very large-scale deal. And we found out pretty quickly that we had a, we had a thought and then a belief that someone in the buying group was very friendly with the vendor and was passing them information just because of how the customer was reacting to things that we put in. So this was quite a long-term process. We worked and worked and worked, but then what we did was we established... Happens all the time, by the way. Yeah, oh yeah, doesn't it just, yeah. And and we established that the right solution, this was very high-end technology, was the second largest piece of technology that we could deliver. So we said, here's the right fit, here's what it does, Here's how it compares. Here's how we're going to compete. And so we, we hit the, the customer with all of that. And we did it and we did it methodically. We took the customer on reference sites visits as they did with the other vendor. And we worked the whole campaign. We then intimated what we thought the pricing would be in the knowledge that that would probably somehow slip to the other vendor. And then on the day of the management committee to decide, when they were going to decide, I walked in with a letter and the letter simply said that our proposal as we've given it to you stands. However, it's the largest of our range that we're giving, not the second largest. Our competitor had spent the whole time working against the second largest and dealing against the second largest and when that was brought out in the meeting, they were massively out of sync and lost the business. Very, very large-scale transaction. And by the way, about a 20-year relationship between the other vendor and, and the customer. So, so you know, that, that, that was just, yeah, it's a sort of head game thing. And by the way, you can't do that twice in a year. You know, you simply... <laughs> not with the same customer. <laughs> you know, not, not anywhere in the same marketplace. Um, but but where you have those suspicions... And by the way, think about it. If you're selling... If you're a consulting business and you've got six offerings, work all the time saying you're giving five. And then on the last day, say, actually, it's six. And so the competitor has no chance to to respond and they have done all of their competitive work against a lesser offering. So it's a really big sort of uh, wrong-footing tactic, which I, I have used maybe four or five times in my career. It's worked every time. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a variant that I've used yeah. that for the same reasons. One is you know that that the incumbent vendor or one of your competitors has an insider that's taking all of your information and feeding it, feeding yeah. it to them which you should assume happens on every deal that you're bidding yes. on. Um, and what we'd do oftentimes is we'd, we'd scope the deal bigger than what we really intended ah, to go with. Yeah. And the competitors would then try to bid against the larger scope. And then we would 
come back in toward the end and say, this is the goal, this large scope. But, you know, it'd be much less risky for you if we break it up into chunks and start smaller. And we'll start with the smaller implementation. Then we'll we'll prove it out and make sure it fully integrates with your existing systems and processes. And then we'll expand to, you know, other locations or, or to the ultimate uh, size. And that's another yeah, way to so do that, it. That's like, oh, hey. Yeah, because I could see how the competitor would be totally sucked into that. And then... It's not, they, oh, yeah, because they all think they're going to yeah, get a huge suddenly deal. Yeah, they're sitting out on a price that looks untoward. Yeah. Oh, that's great, Andy. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could we, we could combine those <laughs> well, two at some time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they might be able to. But it's just, it requires some creativity, right? Because especially if you're a smaller company, yeah. as oftentimes I was, selling as the underdog, selling against big companies, I knew that they their sellers had much bigger quotas than than sometimes even the revenue of our entire company at that point, right? <laughs> so they their eyes lit up when it came in a big bite. And then suddenly when the big bite turned out to be a smaller bite, they lost interest because it's not going to help them make their number. Yeah. Even though they, if they were patient and stayed with it for a year, they'd get the whole thing. But yeah, the short-term uh, outlook. Yes. Yeah. Worked to our advantage almost uniformly. Yes, it is, yeah. It's a pretty powerful strategy. And you know, I, I think I, you I hit think... the nail on the head there, Andy. It's about thinking. Too much of sales is now process. Think about the customer, think about their situation, think about the problem, and work from there. Don't just say it's a standard sales process. Yeah. Well, this is what makes sales fun, right? I was to be creative. And to be able to find a uh, different way to be able to help your buyer get what they want, right? I mean, that's that's why we're in sales in the first place. I mean, that's you know Zig Ziglar's famous quote about, yeah, I can only exceed. I can only I can succeed. I can succeed only to the extent that I can help you get what is most important to you. Yes, and be more creative with that. I mean, you don't have to follow. I mean. There's sort of a theme you had in your book, which I again resonated with me. Which, again, always most of my career working for startups that by def- selling complex technical products that by definition we are underdogs, and sometimes services the same way as it was like I don't want to worry about the comp- competition. I want to make them worry about me, yes, and what I'm doing, yes. And so I'm going to be responsive. I'm going to be nimble. I'm going to be agile. I'm going to be creative. And ways that I can help the buyer and make them respond to what I'm doing, not the other way around. Yes, yes, no, and that is that is so true. People often get so upset or worried about, oh, hey, we're only small and the other players are big. Look at the advantages you've got, and look at the trouble you can cause for that big company. Now, you don't, you're not in business to cause trouble for another vendor, but my goodness, if you can disrupt what they're trying to do because you're so nimble and so capable. That's an enormous benefit, and you can't really do that inside a very large corporate. Yeah, I mean, seemingly, right? I mean, there's some organizations I think are are relatively good at that, but you know, you referenced IBM earlier. You remember, yeah. I don't know, six seven years ago, uh, the CEO of IBM sending out this video to the entire workforce saying, "You know, we're being hammered by our competitors and our customers because yeah, we're not we're not being responsive enough, we're not being creative enough." Uh, yeah, we need to change that. Yes. And yeah, you get yeah, big organizations sort of get stuck in what they're doing. And if you can be more nimble, more agile, uh, be more creative, offer a different multiple approaches to a solution that 
that maybe you know your competitors only offer one. This is what we do for companies like you. It's like, well, hey, here's two choices yeah. we can offer you. Yeah. Play that. That's to your advantage. Absolutely, absolutely. You don't have to play by somebody else's rules. You know, going back to that story about going to the software vendors and selling to them to the point that they all wanted to to recommend you. You know, that was. Yeah, I mean, that was a random thing that I decided to do at the time. But my goodness, it's in my playbook now. <laughs> well, and yeah, it's what makes sales fun. I mean, for me, you know, I look yeah. back, it was, yeah, I've been doing yeah. this a long time. And yeah, I suspect you might have similar feelings to me. It's like, yeah, it's been a great career. I've made a lot of money, uh, but I wasn't doing it for that. It was, you know, I love... I tell people, you know, I got into sales when I graduated from university. You know, I had no discernible job skills at all. And what I did have is I had, you know, insatiable curiosity and a competitive streak a mile wide. And it's like, <laughs> there you sales, go. perfect combination, right? <laughs> That's all we but need. But it's, yeah, it's what's, it's what's, yeah, it's what sustained me over you know, decades why I do this podcast. You know, I have nearly a thousand episodes because I'm curious to keep learning about, you know, this business, this profession we're in. And I've, you know, talked to all these you know, hundreds and hundreds of really smart yeah. people about this. And, and boy, do I take my hat off to you. Yeah. And so it's, you know, if you have that yeah, curiosity. Yeah, yeah. And do you know what? That feeling when you are the smaller vendor and you just wrong-footed the larger vendor and you've brought in that big deal, that, that I think is the best feeling in business, full stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when you've got the right thing for your customer and you know it's going to be good for them and you know the big vendor or the incumbent or whatever has lost, oh, that's such a nice feeling. Well, and plus you know that the salesperson on that, that account for the big vendor has probably already spent a good chunk of the commission check they thought they were going to get off that, that deal. The pleasure is even greater at that point. <laughs> because, yeah, I'm sure you've been in the same situation. I've been. Oh, oh yeah. I, I should you, know, you can just tell from the comments they make, you know, the big companies make to the, the customer while you're going through the process. Just sort of the arrogance and, and uh, the assumption to some degree, the presumption that, you know, yeah, we've got this. We're on the inside track. It's like, Yeah. Those are those are good days indeed. Yes, yes. Well, Jim, we're sort of at the end of our our run, but it's been fantastic talking with you. I have I have had a ball and I've had a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, if people want to learn more about what you're doing and learn more about your book. How can they do that? Uh, well, first of all, I'm very active on LinkedIn, and it's just Jim Irving Belfast, so that's easy. Um, and then. Quite simply, either go to any of the of the, of the online bookshops, or to my website, which is all the W's, B two B sellingguidebook.com. and that gives information on the first book, and on the second, which addresses what I think is the biggest problem, which is the leadership element and the coaching element and the supporting element for management in sales and particularly in smaller organizations. So so everything is there at the, on the website. All right. Well, what we'll do is we'll make a plan to have you come back. We'll talk about your other book, the B2B Sales Leaders Guidebook, and uh, pick up the conversation then. Okay. I, I thank you so much for, for having me on, Andy. It's been really enjoyable. And uh, I, as I read, and I mean, I've, I've listened 
to the podcast for a long time, but as I actually looked at your background, I was smiling because you started selling shoes, I started selling door to door, <laughs> and it looks like the paths were, <laughs> were pretty similar over the years in our own universes. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, yeah, no, very definitely kindred spirits. So, uh, Jim, thank you for coming. Have a great weekend, and we'll look forward to having you back on the show before too long. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I am so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Jim Irving, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.